One of the things we're doing during the series is filling out a funeral pre-planning worksheet. And the, the one we're using is linked in the uh, show notes. We don't often think about what we want for our end, but if we have something to look forward to in the end, it should not be depressing or morbid. On page three of this sheet, there's a place to choose our pallbearers, my pallbearers. Who do I want to carry my body? Often these are people that I know and it could be friends or family. Some people in a funeral are carrying more emotional weight. So we get others to carry some of the physical weight. Pallbearers honor the dead and the family of the deceased. To determine the number of pallbearers, four to six are customary and it doesn't have to be the strongest men because funeral service providers now provide wheels. We also need to consider if our body will be cremated before the funeral or memorial service because cremated remains only need one pallbearer. These are details to consider for the benefit of my remaining family because the funeral is not for me, but there is something for me at the end. We're not just planning funeral services. We're spending four weeks looking at four promises God has for me at the end. I have something to look forward to because the promises of Jesus for my end are promises for life unending. Jesus and I are not dead and we're not done. The first promise that we looked at was God promises the return of Jesus as king. The second promise of God is a new body. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 1. At Jesus' ascension, the disciples were concerned as to whether or not Jesus was coming back. The angels assured them that the return of Jesus is just as sure as his, as his incarnation, the new covenant, his death, his resurrection, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Christians in Corinth are sure of Jesus' return, but they're unsure of their own resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul has laid out nearly the exact same arguments for the believer's bodily resurrection as the angels did for the return of Jesus. If I believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose to life again, if I believe that Jesus will return as king, then I should have every confidence that Jesus will raise me from the dead, even if I can't comprehend how Jesus will accomplish my resurrection. These early Christians had some of the same logical concerns that we have. They've seen resurrections, but the longest time anyone has been dead was Lazarus at four days. What about people who had been dead a lot longer than that? What about people who all that was left of their body was bones? What about people that we don't even have their bones because they were lost at sea? What about people whose bodies were burned? The same concern that some may have about cremation. How does God raise the dead was their question. Christians have been trying to figure this out for centuries. In medieval times, it was thought that the condition of my corpse affected my existence in the afterlife. If someone was to be punished in the afterlife, their body would be buried on one side of the road and their head on the other side of the road. This would supposedly leave the person wandering the afterlife because they had no head. This was illustrated in the recent movie, The Green Knight. I understand the concern of wanting to know how something like a resurrection is done. 
When I have a technician come to work on my house or at the church, I like to watch. Not just so I can check if they're doing a good, good job, but to see how they do it. Sometimes if I see how it's done, then I can understand it and do it myself and not have to pay them the next time. At the very least, I want to know how it works. I've watched plumbers, electricians, radon remediation, locksmiths, and concrete workers. I pay attention to my doctors, nurses, and even the person that draws my blood at the lab. There's always another repair that needs to be done on a building or my body because we live in a world where things break down in our home, in my body. So how does God repair the dead? That's hard to figure out. I was taught in science that there is limited matter and energy in the universe. When one person's body decomposes, their atoms go back into the system of life. Who's to say that a molecule of me wasn't a molecule inside of someone else 100 years ago? Who got it from someone else 1,000 years ago? When God resurrects the dead, who gets that molecule? Paul the Apostle is not going to give us a mechanical process of how God resurrects the dead. The closest thing we get to that is the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. Instead, Paul first wants us to be absolutely sure that Jesus will raise us from the dead. Just as sure as Adam brought death to humanity, Jesus brings life. Second, Paul tells us the method and reason for resurrection. Part of the reason the Corinthians and we have confusion over the resurrection is the assumption that the end is like the beginning. Isn't the future resurrection like past resurrections? My future body like my body I have now? Well, the end is not like the beginning. Think about that. Say that with me. The end is not like the beginning. The end is based on the beginning, but a tree is not a seed. The end can is a renewed version of what came before, a full expression of life. But the end is not the same as the beginning. With God, we move forward, not backward. God does not promise make creation great again, but instead promises to recreate something better. The end is not like what? The beginning. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58. So what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with, clothed with in, incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul begins this section with the kingdom of God, when Jesus returns and begins his physical rule of the whole earth. He tells us who, or actually what, 
cannot inherit or receive a portion of the kingdom of God. The verb tense Paul uses emphasizes that this is an action that can never take place. Flesh and blood is never part of the kingdom of God. This type of body that I have now never enters the kingdom of God because this type of body is corruptible. This body of flesh and blood is dying, is perishing. It decays both physically and morally. But the kingdom of God is incorruptible. If I brought this type of body into the kingdom of God, it would be bringing corruption into the kingdom. And Paul says that is impossible. The kingdom of God is not like cheese. One of the things my wife and I worked out early in our marriage is not touching the cheese with our hands, even if our hands are washed. I saw my wife once putting her hand into a bag of shredded cheese, and I said, don't do that. Cheese will keep for a really long time if it doesn't get contaminated. But if it gets contaminated, mold grows on it. She understood that, and she didn't put her hand in the cheese anymore. Then she was at her Aunt Georgie's house with her whole family, and the bag of cheese was pulled out. Someone in the family started to stick their hand in it, and she says, Don't put your hand in the cheese. It will get moldy. Aunt Georgie said to everybody in the family, we always put our hands in the cheese. It doesn't get moldy. Then they started pouring out the cheese, and there was mold in it. In our world now, there is corruption. As I said, my body is dying. My touch or my breath can take take something that is clean and make it unclean. That's why we wash our hands. That's why we wear masks through the pandemic. There are numerous purity and cleansing rules in the Hebrew Bible because God's people are supposed to be clean, physically and spiritually. A couple of the most important cleaning laws have to do with how a person deals with blood and how people deal with dead things, especially the bodies of people. Bodies are corruptible. Everyone that the prophets, Jesus, or the apostles raised from the dead, what happened to them eventually? Well, eventually they all died again. When Elisha raised the widow's son, the son did not become immortal. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter or Lazarus, they did not become immortal. When Peter raised Tabitha, she did not become immortal. When Paul raised Ichthyus, he did not become immortal. If they had, I think we'd know about it because they would be great witnesses to the power of God. The son, the daughter, the brother, Tabitha, Ichthus, everyone who was raised from the dead was raised corruptible. The final resurrection Jesus does for me cannot be like the ones before because that would mean I couldn't come into Jesus' kingdom. So the end cannot be like the beginning. This makes Jesus' resurrection body actually make more sense. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18. This was not, Jesus wasn't the first person ever raised from the dead, but he is the first one raised from the dead in the new type of resurrection body. I mean, think about how Jesus is described after the resurrection. He can be touched, he can eat, he can hear and be heard. He can also appear in locked rooms at will. He can also have holes in his hands and not bleed. 
he's recognized more quickly by his voice and actions than his looks. It's still Jesus, but now he's incorruptible. He cannot die again. Theologians have debated forever over the fallibility or infallibility of Jesus, meaning when Jesus was tempted by the devil, could he have actually sinned? God will not break his character, so God does not sin, but Jesus was also fully human, and humans have choice. I can only answer the question in this way. Before his death, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet never sinned, never disobeyed God the Father. After his resurrection, Jesus is incorruptible. Now he cannot sin or die. If I am to enter the kingdom of God, my body must also be incorruptible. This is both the reason for and the method of the resurrection. Corruptible becomes incorruptible. Mortal becomes immortal. Dying becomes undying, everlasting, and eternal. Paul tells the Corinthians, Yep, some people have died, and more will die before Jesus returns. But not everyone is going to die before Jesus returns. Dead or not, everyone will be transformed. Everyone will be changed. The end is not like the beginning. It will only take a moment, like a flash of light in someone's eye. The last trumpet will sound. Perhaps the shofar of Rosh Hashanah. Perhaps the seventh trumpet of Revelation. Perhaps those are one and the same. I don't know for sure because Jesus told his disciples it's not for them to know when he will rule the kingdom. Just be sure that he will. But in that moment when Jesus comes to rule and reign, the dead are raised and all the living and the dead are transformed from dying to living eternally. I still have a choice, but my choices are now, like Jesus, infallible. God raises my own body, but my body is no longer part of a system that needs both life and death to function. Right now, if I were to die, there are bacteria waiting to eat me up. They put my molecules and energy back into the system so creation can build new life. Sometimes creation doesn't wait that long. Do you know why people sometimes marinate uh, or cook meat with pineapple? Pineapple is a natural meat tenderizer because it contains the bromelain digestive enzyme. When you eat a piece of pineapple, it starts to eat your tongue. Our world functions by means of corruption and death, but that is not how the kingdom of God functions. We have to be more than raised from the dead. We have to be changed into the new creation system. This corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Death is gone and becomes the victory of life. The wages of sin is death, but there is now no more death because there is no more sin. The law of God will even be different from us because it's no longer there to try and keep me from sin. It's there to free me to live. The law of sin and death becomes the law of life. Thanks be to God. A new incorruptible body. That's a great promise for the future. But Paul doesn't just leave this promise out there in the future. Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What Paul is saying there is, because I have this certain promise for an incorruptible body in the future, I should live incorruptibly 
now. I can be steadfast now. Steadfast means fixed in place or in purpose. 1 Corinthians 7.37, speaking of marriage, puts it this way. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control of his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So it's not being forced into a position, but a firm choice. Colossians 1, 22 and 23 says, But first now he, Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel you have heard. My belief in the salvation of Jesus should be unshiftable. I can also be immovable now, persistent. Hebrews 3.12 says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In Hebrews 10.35-37, So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. So steadfast is nothing external can move me away from my faith. Immovable is I will not move myself away from my faith. It's not that challenges won't come. Of course they come. External challenges, like when life is not seeming like it is blessed, when my corruptible body is letting me down, or a person, or the church. Internal may come from my own frustrations, emotions, or doubts. Internal challenges may even happen when I deeply study the scriptures. I have yet to teach or preach through the book of Joshua, because I have a hard time with Joshua, and I'm not the only person with this challenge. It's easier for me to teach Revelation than Joshua, but I don't quit the faith just because Joshua is difficult. I can be immovable now, I can be steadfast now, and I can always excel in the Lord's work now. Excelling means I should have so much that I should have leftovers. My work for the Lord exceeds the fixed number. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 13.12, Whoever has, for whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will be, and he will have more than enough. I think of the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14:20. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Then they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. When people start doing the Lord's work by sharing, they exceeded what was needed to satisfy everyone. So I can be immovable, steadfast, and excel in the Lord's work because I know how I will end up immortal and infallible and in a world that is eternal. Let's be real here. I may be firm in the faith, but my body is not yet immortal. I'm getting older. I know members of this congregation have pacemakers, cancer, hearing loss, dementia, have suffered strokes, shoulder and knee and hip surgeries. Some people have hurts or handicaps that others can't see. One 75-year-old can ride a motorcycle and another 75-year-old rides in a wheelchair. 
If I'm the one in the wheelchair or caring for that one, how do I live incorruptibly now? Well, not all the Lord's work is physical. Physical limitations are grace from God. Perhaps this is the time to move from external spiritual disciplines to interior practices. If I can't ride a motorcycle, then I can pray for those that do. That's intercessory prayer. I'm going to explain that more next week. This week, I want to acquaint you briefly with three different types of prayer that regardless of your life circumstances, you may want to try. First, centering prayer. Centering prayer is silent prayer that focuses on being in the presence of God. It's also called contemplative prayer. It's silencing my interior self so that I can hear and experience God. Often people choose a single word to focus on while praying in this way. I'll be honest, centering prayer does not work well as part of my spiritual practice at this point in my life. I'm more likely to fall asleep. But just because I don't practice this type of prayer doesn't mean it may not be a good practice for you. Second is the Jesus prayer. This is a prayer of repetition, so it may not be for everyone. It goes like this. As I breathe in, I pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And as I breathe out, I pray, have mercy on me, a sinner. Repetitious prayers are not usually part of our practice as Protestants. But I've heard too many accounts of Christians who find God's peace in practicing the Jesus prayer to discount it. Third is the prayer of examine. This is a daily way of reflecting on my life and what I've done and God's interaction in my day. It's like creating your own psalm every evening. Everyone can pray the examine, and there's even an app for it. The examine has five steps. First, become aware of God's presence. It may be helpful to repeat a phrase like, be still and know that I am God, or other prayers that connect you to God. Second, review the day as if it were a movie playing in your mind. Third, pay attention to your emotions, moments of sadness, frustration, or joy, times and places where God felt close or God felt distant. Fourth, choose one feature of the day and ask God, what do you want me to learn from this specific event in my day? And fifth, Look forward to tomorrow with gratitude as you await God's answer and guidance along the way. I'm not saying it's always easy to give up the physical service we do, but my limitations open the door for me to do other things and make opportunities for others to serve where I used to be. For me, as a pastor, there should come a time and a point where I'm less concerned with preparing my sermon and more concerned with preparing preachers. I may have to talk less, but be able to pray more. The end is not like the beginning. I'm becoming incorruptible, becoming resurrected over time, ready for the kingdom of God. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Then you have the promise of a new body, and we should already be living incorruptibly. Stay firm in the faith. And let your good works overflow. You're not dead. You're not done. Our prayer today is taken from Psalm 146. Hallelujah. My soul, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Do not trust in nobles, in a son of man who cannot save. 
When his breath leaves him, he returns to the dust of the ground. On that day, his plans die. Happy is the one whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow. The Lord reigns forever. Our God reigns for all generations. Hallelujah. Now to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, may grace, peace, and power abound.